The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. As he opened the door and saw the men standing in front of him, surely the question that was on his mind was, what have I gotten myself into? The men looked obviously exhausted from a days-long trip. And judging by the marks on their legs, they had clearly just been imprisoned. So he invited the men in and they sat down and had a meal together. And as one does when you have guests in the evening, you sit up far too late having conversations. They went to bed, woke up the next morning, had breakfast, and then they left and went to the synagogue together. The men had been introduced, and one of them, a man named Paul, stood up to address those who were present that day. He talked about the way that that God had chosen his ancestors to become many in size. He talked about the way that they would be a large nation. He talked about the way that their 400 years of time in Egypt and time in slavery had made them into the people that God had promised. He talked about the way that God had led them out of slavery. He talked about the way that they had wandered for 40 years in the desert. And despite their persistent disobedience, he talked about the way God loved them nonetheless. He talked about the way that they finally entered into their promised land. And after a short period of time, they demanded a king to be like all of the other nations. And first God gave them Saul and then he gave them David. And then the man talked about how this savior had been promised out of the lineage of this King David. And centuries and generations and generations later, this man named Jesus, showed up in Jerusalem, showed up in Israel. And rather than being welcomed as the Savior, rather than being welcomed as the Messiah, he was, in fact, condemned. These people and their leaders went to Pilate, the Roman leader in Jerusalem at the time, and demanded that he be executed. And he was. He was put on a cross. He was crucified. And he was dead. And at the end of that day, they took his lifeless dead body and they placed it into a tomb. Then this man talked about how three days later, this man came back to life. How God brought this man back to life. And all of the people who had been his followers before his death, all of a sudden now were his witnesses. And these three men that were there in the synagogue that day were his witnesses. This is what Paul said. And we are here to bring you this good news. This promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us. Because of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. And as these men left the synagogue that day, they were were bombarded with people asking questions, wanting to know more. In fact, inviting them to come back for a second week. So these men spent their time between Sabbaths visiting people in the synagogue, in their homes, talking about who this Jesus was, answering their questions. And they came back the second week and they shared a similar story about who Jesus was, who this Messiah was. 
and they were invited back for a third time. Again, that week in between, that space in between, talking more about answering questions, teaching, taking time to talk about the Messiah. Well, at the end of that third week, some of the Jews believed in this Messiah. They were converted to believe in this Messiah. Some of the God-fearing Gentiles, men like this Jason who housed Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke converted to Christianity. Also, a number of prominent women converted to Christianity. But that wasn't the only response. See, there was a group of Jews in the synagogue when they heard this story and they saw the response, what they were is they were angry. They were jealous. So they did what angry and jealous people do, You find a group of friends, a group of people from the marketplace, and you show up at Jason's house determined to drag these men out. Of course, they didn't know that that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had, had already fled. But who was in Jason's house but Jason and some other people that lived with him? And they were dragged out into the street. They were dragged before the city council. And they were accused of probably the highest crime that one could be accused of, which was treason. Penalty for treason is death. Luckily, they got out of it just by paying bond. And again, they had to go home and and clean and pick up and rearrange their house after what happens when you get dragged out and people are ransacking your home looking for someone else. In the, force, in the course of the next several weeks and months, this, this group of converts kind of became, became this church. And it must have been difficult for them to be out there kind of on their own, having only had a few weeks of teaching to, to provide solace for them. It must have been difficult. We can imagine the the trauma for Jason as he's walking through the marketplace. The PTSD as he sees people who dragged him out of his own house. Must have been difficult to sit in the synagogue with the same people who pulled you out of your house. Who are seeking to accuse you of treason. But they did what they could. They remembered the brief teaching that they had. They, were, they tried to be faithful. They tried to encourage. And they looked forward to the time that Jesus was going to return. And then one day, kind of out of nowhere, Timothy shows up. And he starts asking questions. How are things going? He starts spending time teaching them, trying to equip them. He returns back to Paul, and again, that little church in Thessalonica are on their own. Until one day a letter comes, arrives, and they gather all of the people of the church together, and it's not hard to to imagine the anticipation, is it, of what was in the letter? It's not hard to imagine maybe the anxiety that they were feeling as as Timothy had come and he was obviously going to report back to Paul what he had seen, what he had heard. 
And they knew a little bit of Paul's story by their time with them. They knew that he had been a Pharisee of Pharisees. They knew that he had been previously prior to his conversion. He had been a harsh man. He had been a strong man. He had been a demanding man. So this letter comes from Paul. So they gather together and they sit down. And they open it. And this is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 10. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We're writing to the church at Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you peace and grace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you just imagine the sigh of relief in the room at this moment? We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven, Jesus, whom God has raised from the dead. He is the one who is coming, who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Again, can you imagine the relief in the room? Can you imagine the feeling that they had, that that they had not been forgotten by Paul and Silas And Timothy, they had been remembered. We're going to talk about three things from from these 10 verses today. The first is this, the way Paul commends them for their faithful work before God. The second is the way that Paul reminds them of the gospel. And the third is the way Paul describes the impact of, the outcome and the effect of the gospel on their lives. So when someone receives the gospel, when the church in Thessalonica received the gospel in the manner that they did, what happened? What was the effect? What was the outcome? What took place because of their reception of the gospel? So let's talk about Paul commending them first. Here here are those three things again. Their faithful work, their loving deeds, and the enduring hope they had in Christ. What I love about this is this is no generic, we're praying for you. We're praying for you. Church in Thessalonica, we are praying for you. This is a personalized 
heartfelt prayer. This is the kind of prayer that you get when, from someone who recognizes the reality of what the church in Thessalonica is facing. It's heartfelt, it's personal, it's passionate. And again, remind, think about the way that Jason would have gone to the synagogue after what had happened to him. Think about the way Jason would have walked through the marketplace, the people that he would have encountered, the, the things that would have been going through his mind, the anger and the bitterness that would well up in him. And if you've ever been injured or hurt by someone else, you know what I'm talking about. It's pain, you, you, just, you just don't wake up one day and have it be gone. It's something that lingers over you. See, this conversion to Christ for Jason, it, it actually cost him something. It cost him something. It cost him something physically. It cost him something relationally. It cost him something emotionally. It cost him something mentally. This church was suffering real hardship. And what Paul does in, in his opening words to them, before he tells them what they need to do, he reminds them of the gospel. He needs to reorient this church in Thessalonica around something other than this experience, this brutal experience that they had. He needs to reorient them around the person of Jesus. He needs to reorient them around the gospel of Jesus so that they will know who they are. He tells them they belonged to God. You belong to God and you belong to the Lord Jesus. That's your identity. You belong to someone. You belong to God. So as you're thinking and you're worrying and you're wondering and you're hurting and you're suffering, remember, you belong to God. Think back to the words that Paul would have shared when he was telling them the gospel. Yep, 400 years of slavery, God was with his people. They belonged to him. When they came out of slavery and they wandered the desert for 40 years because they were disobedient, God was faithful because they belonged to God. Through all of the kings, through all of the bad things that happened, they belonged to God. So you, church in Thessalonica, you belong to God. They need to be reminded of who God is and what God has done. That's the gospel. Paul uses the word, the NLT says, brothers and sisters, Paul uses the word brothers because he wants to make the connection with them that they are family. Remember, Paul talks about his ancestors, the people who had come before him. And by talking about them as brothers and sisters, we're in the same category. We are family together as followers of Christ. We're family. Brothers and sisters, we're family. You're not exempt from this. Just as God loved and chose the Israelites, he's loving and choosing you. This good news that Paul and Silas and Timothy and, and Luke are, are sharing isn't, isn't just a matter of words. We see that here. Verse 5, for when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words. We weren't just telling you words. We weren't just saying things to you. It says it came with power. 
Other trans, translations, they don't have the confirmed by the Holy Spirit, the assurance by the Holy Spirit. They say in the Holy Spirit. So we came to you with words. We came to you with power. We came to you in the Holy Spirit. We came to you in confidence, in assurance. We're not just telling you words. This is going to be unpacked more in the next section in chapter 2. We're going to talk about that next week. But this gospel wasn't just words. It was in power. And ultimately, the presentation of the gospel was confirmed by the way Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke lived among them. See, that was the thing that ultimately mattered. We hear lots of words from people, don't we? And what we often do and what we ought to rightly do is compare their actions to their words. Now, we're not going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. But what each one of us sort of expects to see is a trajectory of consistency between what someone says and what they do, right? We, we want to see some level of consistency, and if someone says something and there's no trajectory of consistency of behavior, we're, we're not going to listen to them, are we? We're going to write them off. But that's not the way that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke came into Thessalonica. They're preaching this gospel. They're teaching this gospel. They're answering people's questions. And then they're actually living it out. They're actually living demonstrated lives that are consistent with the things that they are saying. And that's why Paul defaults to that at the very end. And you know from our concern for you, you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when you, we were with you. All you had to do is watch us. And even though it was only a short time, even though it was only three weeks we were in your synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath. We were knocking on the doors to your homes. We were in conversation with you. We were teaching you. We were answering your questions. Later, we're going to learn that, that Paul uh, actually worked physically, like had a job when he was in Thessalonica. And everything that they were doing was consistent with what they were saying. I think there's something in there for us. Paul's going to tell the Thessalonians, again, this is in chapter 2. He's going to say, the way we were with you was we were like children. The way we were with you was like we were mothers among you. The way we were with you, it was like we were fathers among you. He's giving them this imagery so they can remember, so they can wrap their minds around what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life amidst persecution, amidst hardship. Amidst all of these things that come and attack us. And then he tells them as a, as a result of their acceptance of the gospel, they became an example to other people. They became an example to everyone around them. And then he describes what that looks like. See, the way that the Holy Spirit was most manifest in their lives was through the death of their sin. He talks about turning from idols and worshiping the one and true God. The way the Holy Spirit was most manifest in their lives was not simply behavior management. 
They didn't cuss less. It says they turned from their idols and they worshiped the one true and living God. And then through cultivating spiritual faith. That's what it means to turn to God, is you cultivate spiritual faith. Some of you I've had conversations with over the past couple weeks, you've either, you either have planted or you're trying to figure out when you're going to plant. You're wondering if you're going to have to replant. You've got all kinds of questions in your head right now. And the thing that you know more than anything right now is that if you don't plant something in the spring, you're not going to have anything in the fall. And here's, here's what some of us are tempted to do. We, we don't cultivate spiritual life. We don't cultivate spiritual faith. And yet we expect to harvest spiritual crops. That's not the way, that's not real life, is it? For those of you in agriculture, that's not real life, is it? If you don't plant something, you are not going to grow something and you're not going to cultivate something. So the, the way that this life was most manifested was in the death of their sin and in the cultivating of their spiritual faith. In the way they pursued God. Just in three weeks, imagine Imagine how much Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke had to share in just three weeks. Several weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, Joe was reading from Acts uh, chapter 2. And there's a last part of the very last verse that, that I've heard that text a thousand times before, Acts 2. But the last part of the last verse in Acts 2 jumped off the page of me. And it says this. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And I thought that was so fascinating because if we were to bring that forward maybe into our time, um, these were not people who joined a church because they liked the music. These were not people who joined the church because, because they, they liked the preaching. These were not people who joined a church because they served cold brew every summer, and I love me some cold brew coffee. These aren't people who joined the church because they had a great children's ministry or because they had a strong small groups ministry or because any of the other things, I think, in our 21st century mindset, like, that's why we tend to get involved and engaged in a church. Because churches provide services that we often consume, which makes us consumers. What's so fascinating about the, the early church at the end of Acts 2 is they were added to the church because they were being saved. And I wondered if I missed something. So I, so I started at Acts 2, 42, and I just started flipping pages and I cheated because I was using the headings on my, in my Bible. So I kind of went through and just made a list. 
Those who were added to the church at the end of Acts 2 in Jerusalem, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, the Gentiles in Joppa in Acts 10, the Gentiles in Antioch of Syria in Acts 11, the governor of Salamis in Acts 13, in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, in Iconia, in Lystra, in Derbe, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, in Athens, in the Corinth, and in Corinth. Each one of those people were added to the church because they were being saved. That, that's, why they went, that's why they went. See, they had been delivered from something. They knew that at some point in their lives, before they were saved, they were, they were dead in their sins and they were dead in their transgressions. And the only thing the only thing that was available to them and is available to us now that's going to bear the weight of that death is the person of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that's strong enough. We, we use that phrase a lot, bear that weight. Think about a bridge. It has a weight limit on it. And if you drive something heavier over that bridge than what the bridge can bear according to its weight limit, what's the bridge going to do? It's going to collapse. Eventually, it's going to collapse. Maybe not the first time, but eventually that bridge is going to collapse. And what these people knew who were being added to the church because they're being saved is all of the things that they were doing in their lives that they were pursuing, that they were chasing after, that they had convinced themselves could bear the weight of their life were empty. And all they had was Jesus. This Messiah that Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy talked about at the church in Thessalonica. And they heard this message. They heard it. Some of them were converted. Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, not a few prominent women. Some of them heard it. Some of them converted. Some of them believed it. And if you remember from what we read last week, and if you remember from what I shared earlier, the, the next sentence after their conversion was not, and they all lived happily ever after. And I think there are times when we, when we think about our Christian walk, we have an, and they all lived happily ever after mindset. What happened after these people converted to Christianity was, was they suffered for it. They faced persecution for it. They paid the cost of that conversion. But here's the thing, they didn't let it stop them. That's what I love so much about what Paul is trying to communicate to this church is, is you, have, you have been through it. You've had hardship. You've had persecution. But you didn't let your circumstance control your joy. You didn't let your circumstance determine your response. And sometimes it can be easy for us to allow our circumstance to determine our response, to be wrapped up in this. 
This is what Paul is going to do lastly. He's going to describe the impact, the effect, and the outcome of the received gospel. See, following the example of the gospel that they had heard from Paul, Simon, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they, they, they saw their example of people who had just been imprisoned in Philippi and then walked 70 miles to get to Thessalonica. See, those people in Thessalonica, they, they saw this example of these four men and they took the gospel seriously and they just lived like it was true. And that didn't eliminate hardship. But they demonstrated, and this is what Paul was talking about. They demonstrated the truth of the gospel, that they had been impacted by the gospel, not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and in confidence and conviction. And then their example, the scripture tells us, it rang out everywhere. They received this message with joy. This is what Paul says. In spite of the severe suffering it caused them, they imitated Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They became, became examples for others to follow as well. And as we think about our own response to the gospel, uh, some questions need to start flooding our mind. Have we received this message with joy? When you hear the gospel, do you receive it with joy? Part of the gospel, by the way, is conviction of the Holy Spirit. So when, that, when the weight of that conviction, because of your sin, bears on your soul, I, are you thankful? One of my hopes for you is sometime in your, in your spiritual life, as, you are, as you're in spiritual training, as you're cultivating a spiritual faith, one of my hopes for you is that sometime in your life, when conviction comes, you'll be thankful for it you'll see that it's actually meant to make you stronger. What you'll do is you'll see that God loves you so much that he is going to reveal to you areas in which you need to grow. Isn't that a good God? Parents, aren't you good when you reveal to your kids what they need to do differently? Isn't that a good God who shares with us conviction? What's the impact and the effect of the outcome of your reception of the gospel? See, the gospel was good news for them because they could set aside all the things that they had been doing. As people who went to the synagogue, what that meant was they kept all of the Jewish laws. 613 of them. Could you imagine what it would be like to be freed from the burden of having to keep 613 laws? Can you imagine that? Last night, we finally finished episode eight of season three of The Chosen. Finally. This isn't a spoiler. Although it's been out for a while, you know how I feel about spoilers. If you haven't watched it by now, too late. There's this scene toward the end of episode eight where, where this, this Jewish man comes from the Decapolis, from the 10 cities, and he's coming to rat out Jesus. And, and he's, not, he's not wearing um, the prayer strings, the prayer ropes. And he's wearing a shirt that's made of two different kinds of cloth. And he walks into the temple to talk to the rabbi. And the guy's like, well, where are your prayer tassels? 
Don't they wear those in the capitalists? Oh, you're just, you're just going along with all of the Greeks in Decapolis. And that shirt, is that made from two kinds of material? You really need to take that off right now. Could you imagine the burden of that? Could you imagine what it would be like for the people who had heard the good news of Jesus to be freed from that? To be freed from the law? To be freed from having to go to the temple, from, to be freed from having to do all of these things. So the message of the gospel is freedom. And this will be another sermon for another time, but maybe sometime as Christians, I think we can be like the Pharisees. We can have in our minds, like we just write new laws. But they are freed from that. We can set aside our need for control. We can set aside our need for approval. We can set aside our need for satisfaction and find rest in the person of Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that the people in Thessalonica heard. This is the gospel that they accepted. And the thing that we also need to understand is, is this is going to cost something of you. We hear... Salvation's free, free in Christ, free in Christ. It's true. We don't pay for our salvation. But here's the thing. Your relationship with Jesus will cost you everything. That's why one of the things that we've, we've tried to get away from and when we talk about giving and we talk about generosity, um, we don't talk about 10% because I have some really bad news for you. God does not, well, this, you're going to think this is good news. God doesn't want 10%. He wants all of it. See, what God's desire is for us is all of us. It cost us everything. It cost Jason everything. And we have to remember as we're, as we're reading through the Bible and we're reading about these churches, these are real people. These are real situations. These are real circumstances. And to me, as I'm, as I'm reading through these texts and studying them, I just think of just the height of arrogance that I think I don't have to do that. My, my acceptance of Jesus doesn't have to cost me anything because Jesus was on the cross for me. Costs us everything. This story is not here in the Bible for us so that we would feel sorry for the Thessalonians. I think sometimes we can feel bad for the Thessalonians. These stories are here for us to mimic them. For us to see their example. For us to call on the Holy Spirit. For us to call to God and ask him to give us strength to do what they did. Lord, help me to do this. I don't want this kind of persecution. I don't want this kind of sorrow. I don't want this kind of suffering. Please. Please give me what I need to be able to honor you with my life. The cool thing about this verse, this chapter that I love so much is um, all of this was so clear and the power on them was so strong that all Paul had to do was mention Thessalonica and everyone talked about it. 
Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine being Paul? Some people think Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians from Athens. Some people thought he wrote it where he went next, which is Corinth. Can you imagine being miles and miles and miles and miles and days and days and days away from Thessalonica and you say the word Thessalonica and the people you're talking to are like, oh yeah, let me tell you about those Thessalonians. They talk about how they welcomed you, Paul. They talk about the faith that they had They talk about the way they turn from their idols and now worship God. They talk about the way that they can't wait for Jesus to return. Can you imagine that? Just at the mention of the name Thessalonica, that's the response. They just fill in the blank. Paul doesn't have to say anything about them. God has been so powerful and they have accepted it in such a way that they become known Questions we want to ask ourselves is, what what are we known for talking about? What are we known for talking about? If, If I were to mention your name in the community, what would people say? If you mentioned my name, what would they say? If you mentioned Westway, what would they say? What would people say? What gospel are we proclaiming? See, the only way that Paul is describing for this church in Thessalonica, the only way to make it through this is to live faithful lives. That's, that's how Christianity works. Is for us to recognize what Jesus has done for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And then we live new lives. This is, this is why they were commended, because it was their responsiveness to the gospel. It wasn't just that the people in Thessalonica were great people. I think we, like we've read Acts 17. They started a riot and chased them out of town. In general, our mindset of the people of Thessalonica is they're not nice people. Yet there's this group of them who have been so impacted and affected by the good news of Jesus Christ that they've been changed. And this is, this is what God wants for us. To serve God faithfully. When we live like we have been changed because we've been changed, this is how we win our community to Jesus. This is how it happens. It's not, it's not by, we want you to bring your friends. It's not by bringing your friends in here and trusting someone else to do the heavy lifting for you. It's not by bringing your friends in here because we have cold brew in the summer. Again, I love cold brew. But it's what happens outside of this place as we're in relationship with the people that we know in the community Which for some of us, that ought to cause us to pause because the question is, do I know anyone in my community? I'm actually friends with people who who aren't connected to the church in some way, shape, or form. See, our evangelism, our proclamation of the gospel happens out there before it happens in here. It has to. 
Because what they're going to do, and maybe this is the sticking point, you're going to tell them something about your relationship with God, and then they're going to watch your behavior. And maybe that's the part that we don't like. Because I'm really not living like a Christian. So it'll just be easier if I bring them to church and someone else tells them about it. See, this is spiritual cultivation. This is how we learn. This is how we grow. This is how we win our community, is by being faithful. I shared this with you last week, and I should say um, we received almost 70 responses last week when we asked you what you're encouraged about. We're trying to figure out how we're going to communicate 70 responses. Um, it, was, it was really awesome. It was really encouraging. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I want you to go back and watch last week's stream. Actually, there's something in the YouVersion event for today where you can, you can text the thing, something that you're encouraged by about Westway. You can still do that. We're still going to post and share those. But when I think about, when I pray to God about you, I think of your faithfulness. I think of your patience. I think of your encouragement. I think of your grace. I think of your willingness to, to do new things like send a text at the end of a sermon. Those are the things that I think about. So you are who you are because of who Jesus is. So we have this question, who is Jesus? Philippians 2 is a text that we read a lot of. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Though he was God, he, Jesus, was God. He, Jesus, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he, Jesus, gave up his divine privileges. He, Jesus, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he, Jesus, appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. See, that's the, that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. When it says he died a criminal's death on the cross, what he means is he died your death on the cross. Your, I, we, we're the criminal. And Jesus died in our place. He died for us. Each week here at Westway, we celebrate, we remember this sacrifice together. And I would love for you to take your elements out. Each week at Westway, we remember this sacrifice. We remember this gospel. In fact, we live out this gospel every week when we remember communion, when we take communion together. We are living it out. Because we're taking this bread, and Jesus said that this bread is his body that's been broken for us. So we take it and we eat it. And then we remember this sacrifice. We remember this death on the cross as a criminal for us. We remember that his blood was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And we take and we drink. Let's pray together. God, as we receive these demonstrations of the gospel through the elements, help us to be changed by the gospel. 
May we go out and demonstrate the fruit of transformation through our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. May your gospel be a lived gospel, not just in words, but in power and in spirit and in confident assurance. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.